So if you'll keep your Bibles open to the book of Jude, we'll continue our study in this book. Thankful for uh, the hymn of the month because it will help to reinforce a very prominent message in this little book of Jude. I don't know if you noticed the book ends uh, in this book, but in chapter, or verse 1 rather, James or Jude speaks of those who are called beloved of God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Literally, you could say, kept by Jesus Christ. And the book also ends this way, with this doxology in verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless. And so at the beginning and at the end, Jude encourages believers with the fact that Christ keeps you. He holds you. If it were up to us to by our own sheer will will and spiritual understanding to hold on to God, who could do that? But rather, it's Christ that holds on to us. And that's very necessary because of what else Jude says in this book, because of the dangers that lurk even among God's people. This is what has captured our attention for a couple of weeks now as we've been looking at this book that encourages us to contend for the faith. In the first two verses, Jude begins with a common greeting that we find in many New Testament epistles. And then in the third and fourth verse, Jude actually introduces his reason for writing. And it comes in the form of an exhortation to God's people, all of God's people, that you must contend for the faith that this is upon you. He says this in verse 3, that I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for this faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so if you take away the message of Jude, he states it very clearly. It is this for all of us. It's the duty of every genuine believer to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The question is why? He's going to answer the question of how to do that at the end of the book. But he opens with this. Why? Why does anyone here need to be concerned about contending for the faith? And of course, there are reasons given us in verse 4. It's because certain people have crept in unnoticed. The idea is unnoticed among God's people who long ago were designated for this condemnation. These are ungodly people who do two things. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. You would expect Jude, if he's warning about false teachers or people that have crept in to seduce or lead away the church, that he would say, you need to contend for the faith because here's their wrong doctrine. Here is what they're teaching that is not orthodox according to the faith we've received. But Jude actually focuses on their behavior. It's not so much what they say, it's what they do. Jude's point is that true belief, what we believe, shows up in how we live. It's reflected in your behavior. 
Therefore, he says, you too must contend for the faith, not just by having an intellectual head knowledge of orthodox theology, but how that comes out in your everyday life, how you live. To support his point, Jude goes into this, giving these examples from the Old Testament in verses 5 to 13. He actually gives two sets of three examples in order to bolster his point that there are people that are among the people of God that that know the things of God, but they live very differently. And so he gives these examples. We looked at them last week in verses 5, 6, and 7 of the people as they left the land of Egypt in verse 5, of these angels who didn't stay within their own position in verse 6, and of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. And then beginning in verse 8, you'll notice how Jude then makes application from those examples. Look at what he says in verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people, that's referring to the certain people of verse 4, they also, relying on their dreams, do these three things, he'll mention. And then he goes on down in verse 11, and he gives three more examples. He says, woe to them, woe to these people, or judgment upon them, literally, For they walk in the way of Cain, they abandon themselves for the sake of game to Balaam's error, and perish in Korah's rebellion. And there he speaks of the influence of a false teaching or a false living. Finally, he concludes with warnings in verse 12 and 13 from pictures of nature that are actually rooted in the Old Testament that speak of of what these people promise but don't deliver. So really our emphasis today, because this is what the Holy Spirit emphasizes through the pen of Jude, is this, is that as God's people, we really must beware of false teachers. But it's false teachers of a particular kind. We'll explain that as we go through the text this morning. So let's pray together and ask God to help us see these things. Lord, would you help us in the few moments that we have to understand your word, to not just have an intellectual knowledge of it, but we would apply it to our lives, that we might live out the faith as you have intended. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was thinking of the message this morning and Jude's warning against false teachers. I came across an article this week. It was an article that was written actually a couple of years ago. But it so clearly, I think, defines today the same thing that Jude was concerned for in his day, that it bears reading. This is a lady, Emily McGowan. She writes an article in Christianity Today. Now, Christianity Today is sometimes referred to as Christianity Astray, all right? Uh, Not everything in that article would I uh, agree with. But what, what I find interesting is that here's someone who really in the realm of Christianity would really be on the more liberal side of Christianity, and yet they're calling out a clear and present danger among the evangelical church today, even naming people. Here's what she says. She wrote an article entitled, Beware False Teachers with Good Doctrine and Bad Ethics. 
She says, for the past several years, we've watched over and over as famous pastors, te pastor teachers go through very public falls from enormous heights. Bill Hybels, founder of, uh, founding pastor of Willow Creek, resigned in April of 2018 after allegations of sexual harassment and abuse of power. James McDonald, founding pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel, was fired in February of 2019 for creating a culture of fear and intimidation and for enabling financial mismanagement. Carl Lentz, pastor of Hillsong East Coast, was let go in November of 2020 for a moral failure, including an adulterous affair and now stands accused of sexual abuse. Though the details of the stories vary, all were men who had the right doctrinal content in their books and sermons, yet they had been denying Christ and leading people astray with their actions long before their failures were publicly known. These pastor teachers confessed Christ with their mouths, but denied Him with their bodies. They were and are a different kind of false teacher. They are heretics of the heart. The article goes on to describe <clears throat> a very prominent fat pastor who had fallen into that condition, a man by the name of Mark Driscoll, who was the pastor of Mars Hill in Seattle, Washington, at one time boasted 15,000 people in attendance at that church. Kent Hughes former pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, expressed similar grief and concern among churches when he said this, among evangelicals, there's a great disconnect between on the one hand what Christians believe and assimilate from sermons and Christian sources, and how on the other hand they actually live. The contemporary evangelical church is not lacking for moral and spiritual instruction. It is lacking in its ability to remain uncontaminated by the unchristian thinking and morality of contemporary culture. There you have people that are very concerned that there's a lot of intellectual understanding about the truth of the Bible, but very little practical living out that truth. And this is the kind of danger that has been present among the Lord's people from the very beginning. This is exactly what Jude is putting his finger on. Contend for the faith, not doctrinally in Theological discussion, practically in how you live. Be cautious about those who say one thing and do another. Jude addresses it very poignantly in this postcard of an epistle with an economy of words. He cuts through the misunderstanding of God's people and alerts us to the judgment of God that is coming upon people who follow in these ways. And although God has judged those who rebel against Him in the past, that was His point of these examples in verses 5, 6, and 7. All of these who rebelled against God received their judgment. He says, although that is the case, you have people among you who walk in the very same way, and they do so shamelessly. They're not concerned about judgment. It's as if they think God overlooks this. 
So James encourages us, the people of God, to beware of these false teachers, these heretics of the heart, as you will. How does he do so? I'll give you the outline in advance. In verses 8 through 10, he tells us to beware of the evil that false teachers promote. Beginning in verse 11, he tells us to beware of the influence that false teachers hold. Finally, in the second half of verse 12 and running to verse 13, he says, be mindful of the effect these false teachers have. So let's look at these together in God's Word this morning. Beware of the evil that false teachers promote. Look at verse 8. These people, relying on their dreams, do three things. Defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. What do they do? They defile the flesh and promote immorality. This is like the previous example of the angels that sinned in verse 6 and and the judgment on Sodom in verse 7. The immorality was involved there, even an inordinate immorality. And he says that's exactly what these people are doing. They defile the flesh. They reject moral norms that are in accordance with God's will, and they defile themselves. It's a sensual kind of ministry that gives credence to sensual seduction and proclaims that it is not outside of God's will. They also reject authority in verse 8. They reject authority and promote an insubordination. That really was reflected again in verse 6 of these angels who did not stay within their own state, but rejected their own position and defied God and went to intermingle with human beings. They deny the legitimate right of God to rule over them and they somehow set themselves up as a final authority. That they have some claim to authority that nobody else has. But we really need to focus our attention on the last thing in verse 8 where it says they blaspheme the glorious one. What does this mean? Well, there are a number of interpretations regarding this. The question being, who are the glorious ones being addressed? Quite honestly, I went back and forth this week. There is considerable strong argument to say that these glorious ones being referred to are actually church leaders, perhaps even apostles themselves. How are they glorious? They're glorious in that 1 Peter says they are the ones that now speak of the glories of Christ, his triumph over evil and his coming again. And that somehow you have these false teachers and they are speaking against the truth of the apostles and what they have said and even those who come after them and speak of the truth that they have proclaimed and somehow they're putting themselves forward as more authoritative, maybe having new revelation that they didn't have. That's a possibility. However, I think given the illustration we have in verses 9 and 10 of an angelic kind of spiritual warfare, I think the immediate context lends itself to think of glorious ones as angelic beings. And not sinless angelic beings, but actually fallen ones. 
Because that's the parallel given us in verse 9. These glorious ones or exalted ones, who are they? I believe they likely refer to fallen angels because of this example. Verses 9 and 10 elaborate on that last sin being described of these certain ones. Verse 9 speaks this way, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Okay, now you're accustomed to reading your Bible, and maybe you read your Bible through every year, or maybe you're, you're on the track to read the Bible through, and you've read all of it. Do you remember reading this story? Michael and Satan battling over the body of Moses. How many of you remember reading that story in your Bible? Okay, a few of you. The only reason you say that maybe is because it's right here in the book of Jude, because you don't find it anywhere else in your Bible. In fact, if you go back and you look at the last chapters of the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 34 and verses 5 and 6, what it says is that Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God, and it says, there Moses died, God buried him, and nobody knows where Moses is buried today. So what's Jude talking about? This cosmic battle between these powerful beings over the body of Moses. Well, again, this sounds strange to us, but if you were a member of the congregation to whom Jude is writing, you would be very familiar with this. He's writing to people who are steeped in Old Testament writings and understanding. That's why he brings up all these Old Testament illustrations and here is another one, but it comes not from any of the 60 or, or any of the 39 books of the Old Testament. It actually comes from a book called The Testimony of Moses. A part of it is sometimes referred to as the Assumption of Moses. This is what we would call an extra-biblical writing. And these people would have been very familiar with the story. In fact, according to the Testimony of Moses, this ancient Jewish writing, Satan sought to establish Moses' guilt as a murderer. Remember Exodus 2? Moses killed the Egyptian who was beating the Israelite, and he buried him in the sand. And as the story goes, that when God was going to bury Moses, Michael was there, and Satan began to accuse and say, Moses doesn't deserve an honorable burial. He's a murderer. He's taken innocent life. And that it was there that Michael responded, as we read of here in the book of Jude, he didn't presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment against Satan. In other words, Michael, this archangel, perhaps the most powerful of the heavenly angels, he did not take it upon his own authority to speak against Satan, this other angelic being. But rather, he said, the Lord rebuke you. I'm not going to blaspheme or rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. And this is as the story is recorded in the testimony or assumption of Moses. So the argument runs this way. In the verse 8, these certain people blaspheme glorious ones. Verse 9 is the illustration, and according to Tom Schreiner, he says this, the argument runs as follows. The intruders, these certain ones, insult demons. 
But the archangel Michael did not even presume to blaspheme the devil himself, but left his judgment to God. If Michael, as an archangel with high authority, did not even presume to judge Satan, how can these opponents be so filled with pride that they themselves insult demons? And it's pointing to their arrogance. What is the sin of these false teachers? They blaspheme glorious ones and really provoke a kind of irreverence. Their irreverence shows up in their arrogance. Even to speak against Satan, proclaim to have power and authority over demons, and in do so demonstrate an irreverence before spiritual truth and before God. Now let me just ask you this question. Do people really do this? Do you have people in the church that defile the flesh, reject authority, speak against demons? Who would do that? You're sitting here today and you're saying, that sounds crazy, I would never follow somebody like that. Well, people like that have to have some sort of sway over people and claim some kind of authority for what they're teaching or saying or instructing on how to live. How do they do that? Look again at verse 8. In like manner, these people also, relying on their what? On their what? What is that? You know what this is? He's saying these people have a God told me theology. Ever been listening to someone or maybe even reading someone and they'll say something like this? Yes, God told me, as in verbally communicated to me, here's what's true. And then they go on to make application from that. Beloved, what I'm telling you right now is that is dangerous. Beware. What they are doing is this. They are pulling authority from the objective written revelation of God that we hold in our hands. And they are actually moving that authority to their own subjective experience that you can't argue with. Because after all, if I came in here today and said, guess what? I had a dream last night, and God told me we've got to have an offering today, and all of you need to put money in the offering or I'm going to die. A lot of you would say, well, let's see if it happens, right? <laughs> but you come to me and you say, that can't be possibly true. You're dreaming about that. And I say, you weren't there. I had a dream. It was as clear as the nose on my face. God said this to me. And by subjective, making the experience subjective and internal, you cannot objectively argue with it because it's my experience. And when I claim my experience as authoritative, I then begin to abuse that in leverage over other people. And this is how false teachers operate. With a kind of irreverence they deny the truth that God has given us, and even in their own way of, of claiming authority and being so dogmatic about it, they look to hold sway over people and influence them. 
This has always been the case, not only among these, among the church that we're talking about, but just think of false teaching and false religions. You ever heard of Joseph Smith, founder of Mormonism? You know, he would say, yeah, we believe the Bible, and here's the Bible, and the Bible's written God's Word, but it's not enough. Why? Because Joseph Smith had a vision from an angel, and that angel told him something more. And that becomes the authoritative modus operandi by which the religion operates. You ever heard of Benny Hinn? This is the way it works. Of course, when someone claims to have a personal vision or God told me or God said this to me, what they're saying is, I don't need to be under the authority of the written word of God because I have something else, something more. Be careful, beloved. You're looking at somebody that is a false teacher. And what is the end of these people? Look at verse 10. These people blaspheme all that they do not understand. You see, they're delving in the area of spiritual, and, and even as Michael wouldn't rebuke Satan, these people in their audacity think that they have some control over spiritual powers. They don't understand what they're doing, but rather, verse 10, they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand how? Instinctively. He says, they think they have superior revelation and they're toying with spiritual things that they know nothing about. They're claiming an authority they don't have. Rather, they are trapped by their instincts. They're like an unreasoning animal. And he's referring to their immoral practice. Do you know what they do know? They do know immorality and sensuality. And they're trapped in it like an unreasoning animal. People have an overinflated sense of their own importance or teaching or revelation. Therefore, they have a condescending spirit and attitude toward biblical authority and even those who would disagree with them in matters of scriptural authority. And beloved, these kinds of teachers resonate with our generation. Because people today are looking for something new something exciting, something that nobody has ever known before or discovered before, some new key to unlock all the mysteries of the faith. And people in a culture like that are set up for somebody to come and say, I have that key. God told it to me in a dream. Be careful. There's an obvious attraction to people like this who appear confident and bold and strong in their own convictions, and they say things so plainly and powerfully that it kind of mesmerizes people and, and, and lulls them into a stupor of comfort that this one has it figured out. We will follow them. Beware of the sin of false teachers you also must beware of the influence that these false teachers hold. Here's the second illustrations that Jude gives us beginning in verse 11. He says, woe to them. Here's a pronouncement of judgment. People like this, woe to them. 
Why? Well, because they are like these three people, verse 11. They walk in the way of Cain. They seek the gain of Balaam's error, and they perish in Korah's rebellion. Do you know who these people are? Why does he bring up these three names in particular, Cain and Balaam and Korah? It's not so much because of their error, though it's grievous, grievous, it's rather their influence, the effect they had on those people around them. Think of Cain. Go back to Genesis chapter 4. You know, Cain, he had a brother named Abel. This was the first murderer in the Bible. Cain took Abel's life. But you know what Cain did after that? Genesis 4, look at verse 16. After Cain killed his brother, he was expelled from the presence of Adam and Eve. We're told in verse 16, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And it talks about others whom he fathered. And look at the end of verse 18. He fathered a man named Lamech. Verse 19, And Lamech took two wives. Cain left the presence of the Lord. He started a city on his own. And in the city of Cain and those who followed after him, now you have this first mention of immorality. Lamech takes two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other Zillah. Notice also of this man, Lamech. Verse 23, Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Here now is the indication of a culture of violence. And you have Cain, this one who departed from God and he established a city, and the city from its very inception is set up on this idea of immorality and violence and self-serving. And Jude says, false teachers have that kind of influence. The people that swallow their teaching and come after them are influenced in that way. And it sets them on a certain course. They're similar to these notorious influencers in the Old Testament. This is Cain. He also mentioned Balaam. Do you remember Balaam? When I say Balaam, what do you think of? All of you think of the talking donkey, right? Shrek, right? No, no, all right? That's the thing we think about because that's, that's the most unique story. But what really is the story of Balaam about? Well, look at Numbers 24. <clears throat> Numbers 24, you know Balaam was a prophet of God, Right? Uh, God spoke to this man, which is a unique thing. And there was a man named Balak. He's the king of Moab, and the Midianites are also included in that. And, and they want to hire Balaam to curse the people of Israel. They've come out of Egypt, and they're becoming, becoming large and strong, and Balak's really worried about this, and he hires Balaam to curse them. But God tells Balaam, you're going to speak only what I tell you to speak. 
And so three times, Balaam goes to curse them for Balak, and what happens? Three times he ends up blessing them, because these are the people of God. And this gets under the skin of Balak. Look at Numbers 24 and verse 10. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have blessed them these three times. And Balaam goes on to tell him, tell him I, I told you I could only tell you, say what, what God would have me to say. And God ended up blessing them through Balaam. But notice the end of chapter 24. We're told, uh, Balaam's final oracle, verse 15, he blesses them again. Verse 25 then Balaam rose and went back to his place, and Balak also went his way. So Balak said, well, that's not going to work. Balaam goes back. Balak goes back. But what's the end of the story? Well, look at chapter 25, verse 1. When Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods, so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, that's a place, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. The rest of the story is this. Balaam didn't curse those people. God wouldn't let them. They, in a sense, cursed themselves because they began to intermingle with the Moabites and the Midianites, and it says there was immorality among them probably in their religious observance, as is spoken of in verse 2. This was a part of their religious practice. Let me ask you, where did Balak get that idea? They can't be cursed by Balaam, but let's do this instead. This will influence them. Well, let me show you. Look at chapter 31 of Numbers. We're just going to drop right into the context, but just note what's said in verse 16 of Numbers 31. Behold these, speaking of these Moabites, on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of what? Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of Israel. Who told Balak to influence this way? Here's how you get to them. Balaam did. Balaam's influence greatly affected the people of God. It resulted in God's judgment. That's why Jude says, these certain people who have crept in, they're just like Cain and they're like Balaam. There's a last example that he gives. We don't have time to look there, but in number 16, he speaks of Korah. Who was Korah? He was a Levite. He was not of the Aaronic line of the, of the priesthood, priesthood, but Korah decides that he thinks he should be. And so he speaks against Moses and Aaron, God's specific representatives. And he comes to them and he says, we're holy just like you. How come we can't go into the Holy of Holies? How come we can't have that privilege? And we're told in Numbers 16 that they gathered all the congregation of Israel together to complain and to gripe against leadership. And God responded by opening up the ground and swallowing them. 
The fact is, though, their rebellion and rejection of authority had influence. It infiltrated the people of God by their complaining and griping. And this is why Jude brings up these ancient examples. He says, these people that creep in among you, they are like this, just like Cain, just like Balaam, just like Korah. Their influence spreads like leaven through the lump. So beware, be cautious. These are rebels who corrupt other people. And they're extremely subtle as they do it. Go back to the book of Jude. Look at verse 12. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. What's a hidden reef? It's a boating term, and you're on a boat, and you're sailing on a vessel, and the point is they're extremely subtle. And, and you're headed toward land, but there's a reef under the water that you can't see. And if you can't see it, the danger is that boat will run aground on that reef and be damaged. And he says... That's what these influencers are like. They sit with you at your love feasts. That's, that's like a potluck meal the church would have, like a fellowship Sunday for us. They're sitting across the table from you. And they're secretly coming in to perpetrate and, and, and put out their false living. And he says, be careful. They're dangerous and they're like hidden reefs. This is their influence. Finally, I want you to note this. They have a certain effect. He gives a number of illustrations from nature. Verse 12, he says, they are like shepherds feeding themselves. That's from Ezekiel 34. They're like shepherds that should be shepherding people and leading them in the right direction, but really they're just self-consumed. They're more concerned about feeding themselves than caring for any sheep. They're like waterless clouds this comes from Proverbs 15. He says, Their waterless clouds swept away, swept away by winds. Think about it. In a dry, arid climate, and the, the, the ground is so parched, it's broken up, and you look in the distance, and here comes a cloud, and it's a dark cloud, and it looks like it's filled with refreshing rain. And yet, the wind blows it right by without a drop. He says, These certain people are like that. They speak of something that's refreshing, something that will fulfill you. This is what you want. This is what you need. And yet when they perpetrate it, it leaves no lasting sustenance. It has no value to it. It's like a, a, a cloud that just passes you right by. Or it's like a fruitless tree in autumn. When you do all the work and you're looking toward that tree in autumn to yield that wonderful fruit that will be refreshing. And these false teachers promise all of this. And yet when you go to look for the real sustaining fruit, there's nothing there. He says they're wild waves. This comes from Isaiah 57. They, they cast up this foam of shame. And finally he says they're like wandering stars. If you're a navigator on the ocean and you don't have the modern technology that we have, those stars were your points of navigation. And what you wanted was that fixed star, the north star, you know, that will never move so you can set your course by it. He says, these are like wandering stars. Those would have been the planets. They're always moving. And if you try to fix your life by them, you'll always be lost. And he says, if you follow them, you'll always be lost. They create chaos wherever they go. 
These are fearful warnings, beloved. Fearful warnings that Jude is laying out for the church. And he's laying out these warnings because it is the duty of every genuine believer to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Let me wrap this up this way. How do we apply this? Beloved, knowing the truth is important. But so is living the truth. Knowing the truth is very important, but equally important is living the truth. How you live is the most important indicator of what you really believe. Therefore, when it comes to teachers and teaching, you should watch the lives of those to whom you listen. How do we apply this? Watch the lives of those to whom you listen. Here's what the Bible says about this. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. What does that tell you? You know what? You can go online. You can go in a bookstore and you can read something from a teacher that sounds very, very good and very, very right. But you have no interaction with their life to know how they actually live. Do you know that this is why God gave you pastors? And it's actually a sobering thing to me to think that people in this congregation are watching how I live to see if it backs up what I say. But that's a good thing. But our world is rife with teachers who claim to have an authority, some kind of authority from God, and they're putting these things out there, and you have no way of watching their life to seeing if they really believe what they're saying and it's coming out in how they live. That's one reason why Church should never just be online. Because you've got to have a real flesh and blood pastor that you hear what they say and then see how they live. But that is how false teachers gain access to the people of God. And it's how they creep in subtly and turn people from the truth. Watch the lives of those to whom you listen. Finally, contend for the faith through your own obedience to Christ. Don't you know this? Hypocrisy discredits the faith. Why do people not come to church? Because it's filled with hypocrites. Hypocrisy discredits the faith. You can tell people at your workplace all you know about the Bible and all these fascinating things you're learning from the book of Jude, but if you cheat on your time, if you're unkind in your language, if you're always gossiping about people, they're going to look at you and say, that's not the faith I want. I don't want anything to do with that. Jude is saying, this is how you contend for the faith. It's by your own obedience to Christ. Live it out. 
Live it out in your marriage. Live it out in your homes. It's why many children turn from the faith because they never see it lived out in front of them. Be different. Submit to Christ's authority. Obey Him in word and action. And that's how you and I contend for the faith. Let's pray together.